up, y'all? Welcome to the Pop Politics Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Monique Alicia Gamble. I'm an assistant professor of political science, a screenwriter, and a photographer. And this show is a fusion of two things that I love to talk about, politics and pop culture. So let's get to it. So welcome back to the Pop Politics Pod. Um, this is episode six, and I'm having a cocktail today. I'm on gin and tonic. Um, uh, gin is usually actually my, my favorite spring and summer spirit. I'm a bourbon girl in the winter and uh, fall months, although I'm really a bourbon girl at, at all times, for real. But <laughs> uh, this is kind of the first, this is the first gin I think I've had all summer. I've been on tequila. Uh, late spring and early summer so I finally picked up a bottle of gin what I'm drinking is Bombay Bramble uh it is an infused gin infused with blackberry and raspberry and I'll tell you I am not a fan of flavored spirits I I picked up the bottle because it was pretty and I'm aesthetically driven um (laughs) and it failed me this time I mean you know it's a it's a fine drink don't I don't get me wrong it's a fine drink but I much prefer just to nice clean gin but nonetheless here we are it'll it'll get us where we need to go all right um so i'm here to discuss on episode six um queer visibility this is a topic that is one that's really important to me it's important to me from a a creative standpoint it's it's important from a an academic standpoint uh, and from a personal one and the personal part is kind of what started this conversation a couple weeks ago I was talking to one of my very best friends and we were talking about you know what it means to to be out and how much of that you want to disclose in non-personal settings and so she was talking in particular like about work um, or about casual uh, acquaintances and casual meetings is it necessary to disclose your queerness is it necessary to talk about who your partners are and it reminded me that she and I had a conversation we we met actually at um Lucky Brand Jeans in DuPont Circle which was my second job when I moved to the the, the DC metro area and then we started working together at a boutique law firm um in DuPont Circle. And she asked me a question. She asked me if I snitched first. That was, <laughs> she need to, needed to fill me out a little bit. Um, but after that, we were having a conversation about girlfriends, and I don't remember exactly how this went, but um, whoever brought up the conversation first, it ended up with, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because neither one of us was in a place that was particular, that where we felt particularly safe to disclose that information and you just weren't sure um what was going to happen after that this is like 2006 you know we've we've come quite a long way since then but um it's certainly back in 2006 it could be scary to disclose that information you didn't know how people were going to treat you after that we found out that we both met girlfriend in a queer way and we were fine it was all good but still now, um, she's still, you know, much more protective of that information than I am. And I realized over the course of our conversation that I'm protective over that information in that 
I want to share it. I want to say it. I want to be visible because I want you to have to deal with it. I want you to have to like grapple with not everybody in this room is the same. And so if you're discussing certain things about say family, or if you're talking about, if you're like with HR and you're somebody in HR is making some kind of comment about husbands and wives doing X, Y, Z things, that's not always the setup. That's not always the setup of families. That's not always the setup of, of, of relationships. And I want to be clear that, you know, if we're being inclusive, then you got to recognize that my setup isn't the same. And so, you know, I want, I want people to deal with that. Um, and so, you know, thinking about that and then these comments from the baby uh, two weeks ago and then Lil Nas X putting, putting out his video. It's just, it just brought the topic of queer visibility kind of to the surface for me in an interesting way. So that's where we're going. That's where we're going. Um, I have a few questions. And so I've, I'm working on giving you guys some structure for this podcast when there isn't a um, an interview. And I, I promised that I would do more sort of commentary. And this is the first one of that of, of those. A little bit more commentary in there. You won't have a guest this time. So you just, you get to, to be with me and be with me only. Um, but yeah, I want to give a little bit of structure to this. So here are some things that I've been thinking about. And what we'll do is think through or talk through some observations that I have and I'll ask some questions and I may not have the answers to these questions and in many cases I don't have the answers to the questions I'm a professor in my core right and so I ask questions for the purpose of engaging a thought exercise engaging a thought experiment um there aren't always right or wrong answers. Sometimes the, the journey of working through the question is where I want you to go. Three observations that I've had around this, this topic of queer visibility. One, you hear very often people talk about, um, we don't mind LGBTQ people. I don't, I don't have anything against queer people or LGBTQ people. They're just shoving it down our throats. They're just shoving their queerness down our throats. Why they gotta be so visible? That's one. Two, um, directly related to comments from the baby. As a way of showing support for him, um, even though the things that he said were entirely unnecessary and harmful, um, so like at best, completely unnecessary and completely unprovoked, and at worst, harmful. You know, passing on um, the stigma attached to a deadly disease that really doesn't need to be there, especially for black men. Like, I mean, let's just be real about that. Like uh, HIV and AIDS um, in our community is serious. It is serious for gay black men and it is serious for black women. Uh, and so, you know, to kind of take something that is so solemn and so serious and turn it into mockery at a concert, that would, it, I mean, it's harmful. So, um, Folks who have kind of jumped out there to support him have talked about the their respect for freedom of speech, which I find also just <laughs> ridiculous. 
on its face. Uh, these these are the most anti-government folks you'd ever want to see. But when it comes to freedom of speech to say something that is harmful, uh, you know, they're, they're wrapped in the flag. So uh, wild to me. Um, but but nonetheless, I think about it. It's it's not so much freedom of speech is the thing that they're really kind of clamoring for. It's, it's the freedom to dominate. And I'll talk about that in the context of um, <clears throat> a piece that I've taught in my classes, in my black feminism class in particular, um, over the last couple of semesters, and that is Audre Lorde's um, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle, The Master's Tools Will Not Dismantle the Master's House. And I'll link out to uh, that essay um, in the show notes too, so you can read it yourself. Um, but yeah, the, that, that notion of, it's not about freedom of speech, it's really more on the freedom to dominate, the freedom to be, the privilege of being, a part of a dominant identity and not wanting anyone to buck at whatever comments you want to make related to that identity or related to uh, an identity that you perceive as subordinate to yours. So we'll talk about that too. And finally, um, what is the line of things that are sacred? You know, um, there, there was a lot of criticism also about, well, now that we've talked about the LGBTQ community and you've talked about HIV and AIDS, the white gays have got involved. And now that the white gays are involved, ah, now it's a problem, right? And because the white gays got involved related to HIV, AIDS, that was a line that they said you could not cross. And so I'm, I'm curious for our community in particular, for, for black and brown communities, what is the line? It's not like um, HIV AIDS spared us. It's not like um, violence associated with homosexuality or queerness has spared us. So what's the line for us? You know, like where, and, and also it's not like queer people were the only people who were targeted by the baby. Like, nobody sang any sad songs for uh, the women who were completely unnecessarily provoked or, or targeted by some of those comments, too. It's like, where is the line? And why are we upset if a certain group has decided that this is the line for us and you've crossed that line and we will not allow you to continue to do so? How is that a, a, a reason to push back? Like, how do you weaponize that? Weaponizing someone drawing their boundaries and saying, like, you will not continue to be able to harm my community. And what does it say about us that we, we, we you know, we, as a group, are like, well, we're used to it. We've heard misogyny and homophobia and violence in music forever. And so this isn't a line for us. I don't know. And this isn't necessarily me judging it. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm as, I'm a fan just like the rest of us. Um, and I've, I grew up on uh, misogynistic hip hop. It's almost like in some ways thinking about hip hop is almost synonymous with misogyny. Um, and I love it as much as the next person. You know, I, it, I, I hear, as now that I'm older, I hear the lyrics and, and in some cases, there's kind of a, a disconnect, 
you know, separating the the music, the way that I feel with it from what the actual lyrics are and how dangerous, you know, how harmful the actual lyrics can be. Um, and there's a bit of a, a, a dissonance with that. I, and, you know, I completely understand. That. And I guess like so this isn't me ju- trying to judge it and trying to be like, you know, how come we aren't up in arms every time? I mean, I am asking that question, but I'm not judging it in that way you know I'm not judging those of us who are listening to I'm I'm more curious about you know if if in fact there is a line for us and if there isn't I suppose we can't be you know upset about other other folks drawing their line it is what it is you know so that's where we're going all right boom so let let's uh, all right. So let's jump into point one or question one um, about this visibility piece. You know, it's being shoved down our throats. We don't mind LGBTQ people. I don't mind it. But why are they so visible now? Why do they have to show us uh, their sexuality? Why do they have to show us I- any version of their their intimacy? Why do we need to see that? Why can't they just be gay, but not like be actively gay? Um, my question about like this, that whole notion of it's, it's homosexuality is being shoved down our throats is like, are y'all serious? Like, are y'all serious? Are you, do you really, you really in your heart and soul believe that? I'll tell you, I taught a class this summer on um, this very topic, uh, queer visibility and pop culture. And the first assignment that I had the students do was uh, I wanted them to watch and make note over the course of like a 24 hour period. I think I, initially, I think I said 24 hour period and then like I extended it through the weekend. Like take some time, essentially take some time over these next few days to give me um, what you see as heteronormativity. Talk about how often you see depictions of uh, families that are head with opposite gender parents. Um, how many times you see movies or TV shows that reference relationships almost exclusively between opposite gender individuals? How many times you listen to music that are referencing relationships, be they, you know, intimate relationships, romantic relationships um, that reference uh, people of opposite genders? Um, think about how many times you hear references to individuals that are rooted in this heteronormativity. And so, you know, for for a boy, for example, boys are men. Um, Boys have to do sports or boys have to be into something that is boisterous, you know, fighting, violence, uh, video games, any of those things that are traditionally sort of perceived as boy things, boy or male things. And girls and women, Dolls, makeup, beauty things, uh, boys. How many times do you see that? Was the the question that I asked them, and I wanted them to just kind of make note of that. And what was interest, interesting is that one of the students, before they did the project, he was like, um, "I actually don't see heteronormativity." Although this was the first time that he was kind of 
had become acquainted with this term so he wasn't even really sure what it meant but what was more important was him saying I don't see heteronormativity what I see is much more homonormativity and so (laughs) I remember us being like there were quite a few folks in the class that were like homonormativity are you sure are you sure that what what you're saying is that you are seeing queer representation on television and you hadn't seen that before and now that you're seeing it you think that that is normative you think that that's normal now and normal to the extent that it outpaces uh reflections of heterosexual life um and so i you know when folks tell me things in classes i don't always like to rip the statement apart I think it's it's more instructive for them to actually go through the process and see if what they're saying is true. And so after they did this, I, th- I think it was over the weekend, ultimately, we came back to class and I had them basically, I think they did like a discussion. And so we uh, talked about it in greater detail in class. And I went back to the dude. I was like, okay, so t- talk to me. Talk to me about homonormativity. What did you see? How many songs did you hear? How many television shows did you watch? How many commercials did you see that referenced queer couples? And the answer to that was basically none. It was none. He didn't have any. He didn't see any. Um, And so we, you know, we came back to this point again about any visibility any at all, even the the smallest amount, because you never got to see it, is it triggers folks. It's like, now that I see any of it, I feel overwhelmed by it. Um, Without even considering for a second how much queer folks have been inundated with heterosexuality. You know, I, again, like one of the questions that I was asking asking in that class was how many times have you ever heard a song that referenced a love or intimacy between people of the same gender? And when did you first hear a song that referenced um, love or intimacy or sexuality between people of the same gender? And most of the students in the class were like, mm, I don't know. Or uh, not until I heard um, the Internet's girl (laughs) like what 10 years ago maybe yeah um, maybe a little bit off there but nonetheless you know this is a class full of people who are between the ages of like 18 and 50 and you know these these expressions of queerness in our popular culture and in our media have not been around for long at all. And even even being around now, you still don't see it to the same degree that you see other depictions of relationships. And so that, that concept of, you know, queer people being too visible or being too willy-nilly with their sexuality, it just doesn't hold up. It just doesn't hold up. And so I guess the, the question, you know, for y'all to kind of rock with and to, to take home and really sit with is like, what do you mean? How can you be serious? And is it possible really that what you're experiencing is you're actually getting to see queerness? You're actually getting to see and experience what queerness looks like in the way that queer people have seen and experienced heterosexuality. Um, a small percentage of that. And maybe that's what you're grappling with so maybe your issue isn't that it's being shoved down your throat maybe it's just that 
you don't want to see it. And why don't you? And it's okay if you don't. I mean, it is what it is. But that doesn't mean that queer folks are doing anything wrong. So, like, I suppose, like, it's... Can you check yourself on that? To what degree can you check yourself on that? You know, if, if Lil Nas X bothers you that much, ask yourself why. And then ask yourself how what Lil Nas X does is different from what the baby does in terms of sexuality. I mean, obviously the queerness is, is the, the difference, but taking that part out you know, so many folks have talked about the concern with what will the children think? What will the children say? And on that, give me a break. That's that's what I'm talking about. You know, there's been plenty of depictions. There's There's been plenty of glorification of overt and explicit sexuality across the board. So queer people certainly aren't the first ones to do it. And kids... Um, they're not seeing this for the first time. So maybe this is this, you know, maybe consider this is an, uh, an opportunity to have a discussion, but also don't do it if you're not ready. Like if, if seeing queer people on TV bothers you, then maybe you're not the person to have that conversation uh, with a kid about what this means. But think about it, you know, think about it. Think about, and maybe, maybe I pose that, um, project that experiment uh to y'all too you know over the course of a weekend or over the course of 24 hours like actually look at tv look at popular culture how in music television film um video games whatever it is think about how often for real you actually see reflections of queer sexuality or queer affection like really kind of make a note of that and see if in fact queerness is being shoved down your throat so check that out let me know let me know come back to me all right point two i mentioned before that when people are saying things about um supporting or protecting an individual's right to say like vile things in most cases what you're seeing is a protection of and for the right to dominate somebody or to dominate a group and not have to be held responsible or accountable for the consequences of those actions that's what we're looking at that's ultimately that's what that kind of boils down to. And I mentioned too that in my, my black feminism class, we had looked at, um, I've taught Audre Lorde's essay, um, The Master's Tools Will Not Dismantle the Master's House. It comes from um, a, another book of, excuse me, it comes from another book of essays called Sister Outsider. Um, and the Master's Tools essay is actually a great one for that concept of sister outsider because what she's talking about in that one is about respecting difference, about recognizing the value that different people who have difference bring to a table. Um, and within that, you know, she's thinking about how queerness is different, how race is different, how nationality, how nationalities can be different, how races can be different, genders can be different, um, and how, and in particular, she's talking about women, um, but how each of these differences that exist among women are a source of power. They're sort of a superpower. If you are um, accepting and 
utilizing all the different strengths that people bring to the table, then there's no no limit to the things that can be done. And within that context, this notion of dominance, being a part of a dominant identity, does also give you the ability to oppress people. So even if you are a part of a marginalized group, even if you're a part of a marginalized group like women, for example, but you happen to be a white woman, you happen to be a woman of a certain class, of a certain economic class, then your existence within that dominant identity of whiteness, of um, a particular faith, identity of a particular nationality each of those identities because they are dominant within our cultures creates an opportunity for you to oppress another person and so to oppress someone who's not in those groups and so she talks about the ways that um we who are in marginalized groups can use those parts of our identity to oppress other people so having said that here's here's where this comes in you know Heterosexuality is a dominant identity. It, no, nothing more, nothing less. It's a dominant identity. More people identify as heterosexual as heterosexual than not. And so, when you hear folks identify with heterosexuality, take an opportunity to malign other groups of people, or who den- who identify as cisgender who take an opportunity to malign those folks who don't, who identify as queer or who identify as transgender. This is a an example of what it looks like when a dominant identity uses the privilege of being dominant to oppress or to further mar- marginalize another person or another group. And because folks reside in that dominant identity, even though they may be a part of a larger marginalized class, they're okay with it. And so you you hear, you know, folks who, black men who are a part of a marginalized race, blackness, black women, black cisgender women, or black heterosexual women who are part of a marginalized class in a number of ways. But because you are a part of the dominant group in being heterosexual or being cisgender, then when you hear the attack on the subordinate group, then it doesn't bother you as much. So you're like, well, I mean, people should be allowed to say whatever they want to say. And you can, like there's no law against it, but there is a consequence to it. You know, the the culture has shifted. Um, Sometimes, what's interesting is that culture doesn't always work the way that we expect it to. So, you know, I'm I'm talking about dominance, I'm talking about dominant identities and dominant groups and all of that, but culture doesn't necessarily work that way. Take, for example, um, black Americans, you know, they are a minority um, population in the world. We are only about 13% of the population in the United States. But in terms of culture, black Americans are an overwhelming force globally. From music, art, fashion, all of those pieces, black Americans have established a place for themselves globally, even though they are a small percentage of the world's population. Blackness, in terms of language and art, like I mentioned before, this has a, a, a global presence. And so just because our numbers are small and we don't represent a dominant group 
numerically, our culture is massive. Same thing can be said for queerness. Um, you know, those those studies talk about um, people who identify as homosexual. I don't know. This might be old too. Like it might the number might be much higher now, but. Um, you know, people talk about the number of homosexuals as something like 10% of the population. I don't buy that. <laughs> In my experience, I don't buy that. But nonetheless, that's what they say. Queer folks, small percentage. Black queer folks, even smaller percentage, smaller percentage of queerness. And yet, again, a much... Um, much more outsized influence than their numbers may present. And so even when you think about within the context of blackness, there is queerness within our stories. Um, there's queerness that's been a part of our art, queerness that's a part of our literature, our music, um, a part of our faith, a part of our sports. See, what else did I add here? I got notes. Architecture, design, language, dance. Uh, one of my favorite things in the world, when I moved to Washington, D.C., I became acquainted with queer vernacular. I had never heard some of these terms ever before. And once I was around more black queer people when I moved here, I got a chance to, to hear much more. And I see how these phrases have just catapulted into popular culture. You know, shade, reading. Uh, uh, Lil Wayne had a song called I'm Going In a few years ago. This is gay vernacular. Like that comes directly out of queerness. Um, I thought about when I mentioned within our faith, I thought about if you are a black person who had any experience in a black church, who doesn't know a gay choir director? You know that dude, you know him. And, and the people in the church know him. And I, I think it would be an interesting conversation if someone were to ever have um, th those folks who, who, who think that there is some sort of uh, disconnect between queerness and spirituality, to have a conversation with that guy with that guy who it, who has been the organ player, who has been the choir director for ho however long, to ask him how he reconciles his faith with his sexuality. And how come he's able to do that, but some of the folks in the pulpit or in the congregation cannot? Why do y'all practice the same faith, but yours is much more exclusive than the one that he worships? It's an interesting, it would be an interesting conversation to have. And I think it's one that um, folks should think through instead of kind of making just kind of like blanket statements uh, about what is and is not queer. Um, so in art, in dance, in our faith, in our sports, in our activism, you know, Baird Rustin, was an organizer, a main organizer uh, for the March on Washington, 1963. So, you know, one of the most prominent figures of black American activism and Martin Luther King had a buddy who's a gay man. And Baird Rustin's story in and of itself is a fascinating one. I'll link to that as well in the show notes. Um, the ladies of Black Lives Matter. And I understand 
I understand, you know, folks make other decisions later on, but the fact that they decided to make a black liberation movement that was inclusive of women and queer people and trans people was revolutionary in and of itself because these things were not included in an overt way. Even though Bayard Rustin was a part, a, a major part, a, a significant part uh, of the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, nobody wanted to say that. You didn't want to, to elevate his story because he's a gay man. Um, these new takes on activism and on liberation for black Americans or for black folks uh, are inclusive of queerness. And that's new and that's important. Um, going back farther, going back to uh, the queer movement, queer liberation, and thinking about Marsha P. Johnson and Stormy DeLavere, who kicked off the riots at Stonewall. And so this notion of queerness is not divorced from blackness. It's always been intricately intertwined. Always. We've been here, is the point. <laughs> We've always been here. So the question that I have, and this question is directly to... Um, those folks who are the ones that I'm talking about, you know, the ones who talk about queerness being shoved down your throat, um, the ones who talk about freedom of speech, and uh, the ones who occupy these dominant identity spaces. Think about, actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this directly because I don't wanna lose it. Um, think about what role your allegiance to dominant systems, ideas, experiences, and perspectives, what role that plays in how much you don't want to see expe uh, expressions of queer affection or queer sexuality? And what if we flipped your dominant identity? What if you suddenly were on the other side of it? If you're cisgender, for example, and your identity was somehow flipped and you became transgender one day, what political, social privileges do you gain from switching identities, from switching the size of the spectrum that you're on? And what do you lose? What privileges do you lose? Sit with that. Sit with that one for a little while. Um, so again, uh, let me, I'm gonna hit it one more time. What role does your allegiance to dominant systems, ideas, experiences, perspectives play in how much you don't want to see reflections of queerness, queer sexuality, and queer affection? Okay? And imagine if your identity, your, your identity as being a part of one of these dominant systems were ever flipped. So if you're cisgender, you became trans. If you are straight, you become queer. Um, if you are white, you become black. If you are male, you become female. Um, what privileges do you lose? What privileges do you gain? Be honest about that. Think through that. What is, what is the difference? Um, and why might people who live at that margin who live in that subordinate space, why might they push so hard for you to see them? Why might they push so hard um, against you saying wild things about their identity or about their communities? Why might they say that? What are you missing if you're a part of the dominant group and you don't get it? What are you missing? Okay. Um, cool. So 
My last point then is again about this HIV AIDS thing. Um, and about the, the line. So this is not, not so much about HIV AIDS, but uh, about the line that was crossed. You know, again, folks talked about how white gays came for the baby's neck when he started talking about HIV and AIDS. Um, and how the conversation was decidedly ratcheted up a notch once um, Sir Elton John entered the chat. Like, okay, now this is different. He ain't just piss off, like, regular folks. Now he, he pissed off, like, gay royalty, essentially. And after that happened is when you started to see, like, all of these festivals and things dropping him off the bill. And I saw a couple things happen. You know, how come when the white gays get involved now, this is escalated to a different thing? Also, how come, well, if you're going to remove the baby, there are also a bunch of other artists who've said other crazy things. How come they haven't been removed either? And so the, the, the question that that brings up isn't so much that like, oh, yeah, it was wrong for them to do this or it was hypocritical for them to do this. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. But the question is, why doesn't the line hold? You know, why are artists allowed to say vile things about members of our community and we don't say anything? We don't do anything about it. We like, you know, bop to the music like everybody else. You know, who is protected, if anyone? And I had a great question, though, the way that I put it. Um, So yeah, okay. I said, let's say I, I take your point about um, when white gays got involved, this became a major problem. So what is the line for black and brown communities? What is the line for black communities? The line isn't um, our kids. The line isn't our women, right? Because Tory Lanez shot Meg the Stallion and mad folks decided to work with her anyway not just uh, work with him anyway not just the baby um uh what's his name uh t-pain made a point of being like mm, so can i work with him like it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter i think about the the number of men for example who have domestic violence on their rap sheets fabulous one of them, you know, busted out Emily's uh, front teeth. And his brother is right on Instagram in the shade room with like the pictures, these beautiful photos of his of his family and the new addition to his family. God bless. God bless. I love seeing new life. I love seeing babies and things. And I'm, I'm also happy when people reconcile. But damn, where is the line? So the line isn't our, it's not our women. Um, the line isn't our kids. When... Back in the 90s, 28-year-old Robert Kelly married 15-year-old Aaliyah Halton, and we knew it. I'll, I'll never forget this. I, I talk about it every now and then in my classes. Um, I'll never forget being like in, I don't know, it was probably in like seventh or eighth grade or something like that, and like being on the phone with one of my friends at the time. Being, and I remember her saying um, she could have at least married like Usher or somebody. <laughs> because you know they're around the same age we knew as kids that there was something way off about this what do you mean Stu's damn near 30 why is he married to a woman a girl and 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 lied about it so it's not like he didn't know it's not show me some id 
before I get knee deep, he knew, <laughs> you know that girl is 15. Um, and so, but why didn't that matter? Why didn't that matter to us? Why did it take like another 20 years to, to begin to have conversations about the ways that R. Kelly was a predator um, on black girls? So again, our kids, kids don't matter. The kids aren't the line. Um, our history isn't the line, right? We talk about how um, them white gays weren't gonna let you talk about uh, HIV and AIDS and, and, and mock such a traumatic period. And so that was a line for them. Here we are, I'm thinking about our history, I'm thinking about slavery, you think about the, you know, the civil rights era. And one of our biggest and brightest stars at one point, Kanye told us that slavery was a choice, like with his full chest, told us that slavery was a choice. With his full chest, sat up in front of um, Donald Trump, who was an unabashed racist, an unabashed misogynist, and hugged this cap, wore the cap, you know, told us that um, it didn't make him feel like a man, it didn't make him feel masculine to say I'm with her, to vote for Hillary Clinton, but somehow putting on the, the Make America Great Again cap and supporting a misogynist made him feel like he wanted to go toss a football with his son, even though he has two daughters, even though his firstborn is a girl, right? So that happened and many of us were like, okay, game over for Kanye. But as soon as, you know, this cat's talking about, well, I'm about to release a new album, Donda in stores available for streaming in August or whatever, who picked up, you know, the remote and tuned right into Apple to watch that concert, to watch that, that listening party? I did it. I did it too. Um, so what? where is the line? Where is the line? I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer for that. And I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know if there is an answer. Maybe there is no line. Um, I'm curious to know what y'all think about that, actually. So those are my... my my questions, my thinking points, I suppose, uh, going forward. So, you know, taking this all the way back to the conversation that I had with my girl a couple weeks ago, I, I absolutely respect her position, I understand it, but it's different for me. Um, visibility is super important for me, and it's, it's a thing that pushes back against some of those points, the points that I've mentioned, you know, about shoving things down somebody's throat, about freedom of speech, about um, where you draw the line for respect, what your boundary for respect is. I think being visible, like offering yourself up to be the person who is the face or who embodies these identities that people love to make fun of. Uh, there's a price for that. There's, there's, there's a risk in doing that. Um, but I think sometimes it's worth it. I think more often than not, it's worth it. Um, one of my favorite films from the, from the holiday season, this is random, but <laughs> one of my favorite films from the holiday season was The Happiest Season. This is, you know, somewhat cheesy um, film with, is it Kirsten Stewart? The girl from uh, Twilight? Like, I don't remember his cast name. Um, 
she's in it and, and my, my boo Dan Levy from Schitt's Creek um, who I absolutely adore but both of them are in it and Dan Levy gives Kirsten Stewart perhaps <laughs> he gives her a pep talk at, at one point near the end uh, of the of the film and he's basically saying to her um, about what it means to like come out when you invite someone into that sacred space of telling them a truth about yourself and you don't know what's going to happen on the other side and the way he put it it's something like you know you don't know once you open that door you don't know what it's going to be like once the words leave your mouth you have no idea you have no idea who you're going to lose after that there and there's no way to unsay those words there's no way to undo being that identity and there's a there's power in that it's it's also terrifying um but there's there's at the end of the day i think that there's so much power in that and i think it's 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 necessary and i think it does move the needle however incrementally it moves the needle uh the fact that you know even thinking about the baby and thinking about lil nas x the response to both of those artists in 2021 is definitely different than it would have been 20 years ago definitely um if the baby had said what he said 20 years ago, there would have been no repercussions. Um, nobody's going to be up in arms. The festivals aren't going to drop him, you know, because it was okay. The the boundaries weren't up in the same way back then. So, you know, being visible has had its advantages. So I respect that, and I, I you know, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and the final thing I want to say about it is. Um, I was saying that, you know, my position, <laughs> if one can have a position on somebody else's personal decision about being visibly, being visibly, actively, openly queer, is that if you can do that, if it is safe, um, if you can find safety, whatever that means for you, then do it. Do it. It's a risk. It is a risk without question um, but in the, the grand scheme and in the larger scope I think it might be a risk that's worth it So that's it in terms of, you know, the things that I've been thinking about. Um, but I do have a call to action for you. I mentioned a lot and I like to keep these discussions going. So please follow the Pop Politics Pod on Instagram. And that is the handle Pop Politics Pod. Um, and, you know, get active in those comments. Like, if there's anything that, whatever I've said here, if you have some follow-up, you have some insight that you wanna share, if you disagree, um, put a message down there. I don't, I don't mind engaging the comments, you know, as long as they're respectful. If you're out of pocket, <laughs> then that's different. Uh, but I, I don't mind, I never mind engaging in an honest uh, and earnest conversation about controversial things. I'm always here for it, so. Um, 
get active in my comments but it's it's pop politics pod on instagram and uh definitely leave a message there leave some sort of comment there all right um also wanted to mention um i said something earlier about visibility and about presence um I think one of the most important things about about being visibly actively queer is that you take up space is that you are unapologetic about your presence in a space and so when I said that earlier when I was thinking about it and I wrote it earlier um, it made me think about this really ridiculous TikTok where this dude is uh, <laughs> recites um, infamous Yama Van Zandt quotes and, and one that she does about presence is absolutely hilarious to me so I will also link that um, into the show notes so by all means laugh with me on that in the comments as well um so that's that but also before i let y'all go uh let me tell you how i'm vibing this week okay um this last section how i'm vibing this week is is apolitical by and large and these are the things this is very much the pop culture the culture piece of the show um these are things that i'm watching reading eating drinking binging any of that uh the comments are another place where you can tell me what you're watching or comment on on my stuff uh, as well. So what I am watching, this is another good point about visibility. Uh, I just finished season one of the L Word Generation Q and just picked up um, the first episode of season two. I have to say that Lena Waithe's presence as Eddie um, on that premiere episode of season two was so refreshing. Um, I have loved the L word since the original. I, I, I loved it when it was originally named Earthlings. Like I was obsessed with this show. Um, and one of the things that's always been missing is a black mask of center presence and there's a way that the l word has done blackness before and it's just not the same and so to have um lena waith embody that energy was just was chef's kiss so i would love um if the producers of the l word if this episode gets if this episode gets to them please include some more black masculine of center energy we love to see it. I love to see it. And if Lena Waith, <laughs> if this episode gets to Lena Waith, yo, I have a script for you. I'm not playing. I'm not playing at all. So, um, I'm not playing. So yeah, watching the L word, enjoying it very, very much. Um, if you're watching, let me know what you're thinking so far. Um, like I said, I'm drinking gin right now it's coming off of uh bourbon the last couple of weeks but bourbon is always the spirit of choice are always uh on the menu but i am drinking gin right now which i deeply enjoy uh one of my favorite gins actually is it's from a dc distillery it's called checker bark um really great flavors really piney and resinous I think that's the right word, right word. Uh, but it's one of my favorites and it's uh, moderately priced, really, really nice. I haven't seen it in my local liquor stores actually uh, in a while, but it's one of my favorite. If you can find Checker Park, it's a nice one. Um, 
Finally, what am I listening to? Uh, yesterday was Whitney Houston's birthday. And so I went down a rabbit hole uh, of Whitney Houston, which was unbelievably enjoyable. There is no one like, no voice like Whitney's. I am always going to be sad when I think about the fact that she is no longer with us. Always going to be sad. Love, love, loved Whitney. Um, also loved Whitney's, well, the, the book that Robin Crawford wrote that kind of detailed uh, their life and detailed Whitney from Robin's perspective. You know, with this episode being about visibility, there's something to be said for the relationship that relationship that Robin and Whitney had, what transpired after or throughout the course of that relationship, and what transpired after Robin sort of left the Whitney orbit. Um, the book d- definitely doesn't read like a salacious piece. It doesn't read like some kind of... Um, you know, tabloid piece. It reads like someone who cared about this woman, who cared deeply for this woman, and someone who who ultimately had to reckon with their lives just could not be in the same place. There's a story that Robin tells towards the end um, where she says, like, both of them in completely different places in their lives. And, and I think Robin was actually married at this point, and Robin, I believe, is still married, has uh, like a set of twins or two kids. Um, but she was married at this time she got a call from Whitney just like randomly one day and I think she you know tried to call her back and never could get her again but there's something haunting and sweet uh and sad about that story and about that call and about the dissolution of that relationship that friendship and that something else that was deeper that I'm going to call a relationship. I'm not saying it it was romantic. I think it's a blend of like friendship and and romance for sure. Uh, But it makes me sad, makes me sad every time. And, And I wish that if the world was at least the way it is now, then maybe things could have been different for Whitney. I don't know, I don't know, but maybe. Um. And then uh, I'm listening to, I've been listening to On It, <laughs> Jasmine Sullivan and um, Ari Lennox. So I will listen to anything with Ari Lennox on it right now. She's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite artists. Like I, anything that she's singing right now, I'm probably going to listen to it. But there is something about On It that is special. Special. So that's it. That's me. That's what's happening this week. Um, And that is a wrap for episode six. Um, Remember, follow the pod on Instagram, Pop Politics Pod, and engage with me. Keep the conversation going. Um, Think about that assignment about um, heteronormativity. Any comments you have about the, the, the topics that I mentioned today. And I'll be looking. I'll be in the comments with you. I will respond. And, um, yeah, y'all be easy. I'll see y'all next time.